We're here for another Wednesday night, and uh, it is February 22nd. And I mentioned last week uh, about the, uh, the, that verse in Psalm talking about the, the word of God is pure words, and it, will, it was uh, purified in a furnace of earth, you know, like silver, purified in a furnace of earth seven times. And so I looked in that magazine I was telling you about. It's uh, Christian History, issue 100. And the cover of this is uh, celebrating the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. So this would have came out in uh, 2011 for the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. I can remember that being a big deal back in, you know, you think 2011, that was like just a couple years ago, but it's been a while now. It was talking about, I remember I said something about the six that came before the King James, so I just wanted to give you those titles of these Bibles. So the original one, and it was brought over by, they say Augustine, brought over uh, a first Bible, but it was like, not a whole Bible, but anyway, it was the first attempt to try to get Hebrew and, and Greek into the English language, and that was the West Saxon Gospels, and that was around 1000 uh, AD, 1000. Then the Tyndale New Testament, and then he was trying to work on other parts of the Bible, uh, but that was in 1525. And then the Coverdale Bible, which was in 1535, uh, it's, it's spelled cover, but I think it's cover, Coverdale. Yeah, C-O-V-E-R-D-A-L-E. So you have the West Saxton, like, like Anglo-Saxon uh, Gospels, then the number two was Tyndale, and the he, he, only thing he got complete was the New Testament. And then the Coverdale, and then number four was the Great Bible. And then after that was the Geneva Bible. I thought that was number six, but it's the Bishop's Bible was number six. So Geneva was number five, Bishop's Bible was number six, and then the King James Bible came out in 1611. So the Bishop's Bible was in 1568, Geneva Bible 1560. So then the Catholics had their own works. The, it's, it's in here somewhere, the Daiua Rams. I don't even know how to say it. That was the Catholics' version of it. And then it changed over time because they were being shown the, uh, the errors that were in it, and then over time they kept adjusting it to make it more correct. But the king, all right, so I had a guy last, uh, by the way, last night at the jail was good. Had six guys, so it was better than the week before. But the, but the week before, I had one of the guys talking about why the King James Bible took off so well 
And he said that it was because of the printing press. But the printing press, and I, I didn't say anything. I just listened to what he had to say, and, and um, then we moved on. But I was looking in here, and it, the printing press came out way before. So there was other translations that were on the printing press way before the King James was. So it, that's not the reason why the King James was so popular. So the printing press, almost all of these, except for the first one, could have been put on a printing press. Especially the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible. They were all, they, the, the printing press had been around a long time by the time they came out. So that's not the reason. Now the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible had a big head start on the King James. And the King James wasn't like it was an instant success. There was a whole lot of people that did not want it. There was a, a man who had been working on his own translation for a very long time. And this, if the King James came through, then it would just wipe out all the work that he had put into his translation. So he was all against it. And we also have the people who had really come to love the Geneva Bible and then the other people who loved the Bishop's Bible. And even when uh, King James got the 47 guys together, they're very intelligent scholars, and they started translating the King James, he told them one of the criteria was to hold to the Bishop's Bible as much as possible. Even though that was one of the, their number one rule, they used maybe 5 or 6% of it as far as following it. Uh, they didn't, it ended up that was very non-influential in what they were doing. And the work they put together was extraordinary. And I, so it took a while. But after a period of time, the King James Bible started to take over as the Bible that everybody was using. But the Geneva Bible was held on to by the, uh, the Puritans, and then the Anglin Anglican Church, the Bishop's Bible was like a revision of the, uh, the Great Bible. So that gives you seven that matches up with that verse that we talked about last week. So I thought I would share that with you. And that was uh, Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, I think. Somewhere in there. But Psalm 12. And then I was reading out of Lewis Speary Schaefer's Systematic Theology last week. Does that sound fancy? Lewis Speary Schaefer and he died, I think, in the 1950s. There's a, I got four big volumes like that. One of them's a little smaller, number, uh, volume seven. See, there are, this is volume three and four together, so there's eight volumes. I got the whole set. I got it at Scripture Truth. Believe it or not, I got it down there a while ago. And... really explains things really well. I mean, for sometimes when a person is extremely smart, 
they have a hard time communicating with others. He was obviously very, very smart, but he was able to write it in a way that you can understand it, the average person, because I'm understanding it, and I'm really liking it, and I'm an average brain person, you know. Uh, and, and you also have to remember that not everybody, I, and that's why I want people to ask questions. Stop me if something's weird, you know, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Because last night at the jail was a perfect example. I've got these guys in there that seem like they know, you know, a little bit about the Bible, and I was, we were talking about the Ethiopian eunuch, and we were talking about that story going on and on about it, and what's a eunuch? And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. So I, so I had to explain what a eunuch is. So I did. So hopefully everybody, I don't want to explain it again. <laughs> so hopefully everybody here knows. And if you don't, see me afterwards, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, there's, there's three things as far as rightly dividing the Word of God that I mentioned last week, and I kind of want to get this out of the way before we jump back into uh, Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, by the way, and I think we'll be picking up around verse 6. So here's the three things that I was trying to talk to you about last week. And it's the, t the teachings, the, the main topic would be um, contrast between law and grace. So there's three t main teachings of the Bible as far as um, the law of Moses being one, the teachings of grace being another, and the teachings of the kingdom being the third. So we have to remember that there is a future that we're looking forward to, even though it's already done. You know, when Shar was 30, her 40th birthday was, was out there, 10 years. It was, it was out there. It was a done deal. It was going to happen one day. And it did. Right? She finally called up to prophecy of her 40th birthday, finally caught up to it. It was already predetermined that one day she was going to be 40, and boom, it happened. Well, now, that's past. And the very day that she was celebrating that birthday was present. Right now, in this present time, we're in the teachings of grace. And we are talking a whole lot about the teachings of the law of Moses because we're in Deuteronomy. And we have to make sure we, we rightly divide the word of truth and make sure that we understand kingdom principles, grace principles, and law of Moses principles, and not to get them intermingled or you're going to have a hard time. And unfortunately, 99% of churches get them, maybe 100% of churches get them mingled. They, they uh, have one, maybe it's just a few things, but they end up pulling it in, and, and, and you, you have people will make up a whole new denomination and split from a church because of some of these things by not rightly dividing and keeping them where they're supposed to be. You 
learn from the past. Remember, it guides you to your future. Your past, what you learned, and what you look back to what other people learned before you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel because somebody already did it. We should be way further along than the people from before if we learn from their mistakes. But too often we don't, and we end up making those same mistakes all over again. So the past is like the Holy Spirit guiding us so that we can communicate and have a relationship with this present day, which is like Jesus, because he's the one who appeared and walked with us as a human on this earth to direct us to the Father who's in the future. We haven't seen him yet, like we haven't seen tomorrow yet, but it will be here. It's fast approaching. And the, the decisions and the choices we make are based on the Holy Spirit leading us and showing us, pointing us in the right direction. Or if you're not a Christian, your past. Just the things in your past, the things you learn. Why don't you touch the hot stove? You figured it out sometime in the past. There's things you don't drive 100 miles an hour. There's things that you've figured out that you just don't do because you've learned it sometime in the past. So the law of Moses is that past that guides us in the right direction, but make sure it gets you to the grace. Okay? Or you'll be wandering in that wilderness just like they did. That makes sense? We want to get to the promised land. So I read about the teachings of the law of Moses last week, and I was right in the middle of the teachings of grace, and I stopped because y'all were zoning out. I could tell your brains were being fried. So I stopped, and I, and I want to pick back up where I left off and try to get through the rest of the grace teaching, the explanation of it, and then get into the teachings of the kingdom. So, all right, before we do this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here again on this Wednesday night. and Father, we are just so thankful that we have your word. Father, we're thankful that you are there always willing to listen to us and have relationship with us. And Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be moving us, helping us, and leading us. And Father, I pray that we would make the choice to, to walk after the Spirit. Thank you for all that you do. Bless everybody that's here. Um, just help us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. These, the teaching of grace. This period between the death of Christ and his coming again is not characterized in the scriptures as a time when the supreme purpose of God is the governing, governing of the nations of the earth. This age is rather spoken of as the times of the Gentiles in all matters of human government in the earth. Nor is this age the period in which God is realizing the fulfillment of his unchanging covenants with the nation of Israel. That nation is now said to be scattered, peeled, blinded, broken off, and hated of all nations. Now, does that sound right? 
and they are to remain so to the end of the age, of this age of grace. That's the way there it's going to be. Uh, you can try to get peace in the Middle East all you want, but it's just not going to happen until this age is over. Uh, I'm, I, I feel like that when this church age is over, during the time of the tribulation, there's going to be a leader who will come forth that is going to be just amazing, and he's going to be able to get peace in the Middle East. And, it, and it's all because he has a, an ulterior motive. He wants to desecrate the way the Jews do things. Um, he's, going to be, he's going to look like he is the most amazing person ever. There will be peace, but I think that's going to be in that tribulation period, the first three and a half years of it. And then the second three and a half years of it, the time of Jacob's trouble is going to be horrible. If you're a pre-trib believer, uh, you won't be here to experience any of that. If, you're, if you are a truly born-again child of God, I think you will be taken out because we're in that, this age of grace right here. We will be removed as the bride of Christ and then... The last seven years of the Law of Moses time will, 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 will come to a close after the tribulation, and then kingdom stuff will start to happen after that. You see how that all works? So we had Law of Moses time. That led up to Jesus coming, dying on the cross, Holy Spirit come, comes down, and then the church is born. Now we've been in that church age, this dispensation of grace, and, and this... If it ended tomorrow, the way I see it is then the last seven years of the Law of Moses uh, dispensation can, can start to finish. And once those seven years happen, that great tribulation, then the kingdom age can start. Jesus will come back, physically come back and touch down on earth. All right. This age is not the time of the salvation of society. That great undertaking is clearly in the purpose of God, but it is reserved for the age which is yet to come. You understand society other, as being different than individual. Societies. The Jewish nation was one as a nation, and they were chosen by God amongst all the other nations. But in this age of grace, it's about individuals. It don't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's about individuals have the opportunity to uh, look at Jesus and believe on him. Now that society thing that he's talking about, the social order of things, that's coming in the next, in the kingdom age. The present age is characterized by a unique emphasis on the, I already said that, the individual. The death of Christ contemplated above all else the need of the individual sinner. The gospel of grace, which the death of Christ made possible, is an appeal to the individual alone, and the very faith by which it is received is exercised only by the individual. The message of grace is of a personal faith a personal salvation, a personal endowment of the Spirit, a personal gift for service, and a personal transformation into the image of Christ. 
the company of individuals thus redeemed and transformed are to be in the ages to come the supreme manifestation of the riches of God's grace. Unto this eternal purpose, the whole universe <clears throat> was created and all ages have been programmed by God. The glory of this dispensation is lost to a large extent when the reign of the law is intruded into this age which followed the death of Christ, or when the social order of the kingdom promised for a future age is expected before the return of the king. See, that's what I talked about starting out. If we pull things out of the law of Moses into this age, or we pull things out of the future back to this age, we're, we're getting, we wonder why we get confused and can't understand the Bible. The Bible affords no basis for the supposition that the Lord will come to a perfected social order. That's why that leaven in Matthew 13, I was trying to explain that to the guys last night at the jail. The people, when I say leaven is never good in the Bible, never. Somebody who knows their Bible really well will say, well, no, there's one place it is good, and that's in Matthew, and, and, and I'll say, you're talking about Matthew 13, and they're like, yeah. I'm like, no, it's not good there either. Well, I thought, you know, it, it gets in, it's the kingdom of heaven is like, and it's like leaven, and it, and it gets in somewhere, and it just spreads, you know, goes through, and everything gets better and better. Is everything getting better and better? No. We're not, in this age of grace, it's going to wax worse and worse. Things will get worse and worse until the end. Yeah, yeah, we see it. So, that leaven is bad even in that situation. Matthew 13, it's false doctrine creeping into the churches because the kingdom of heaven was taken by force and Jesus didn't set up his earthly throne. So, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Man took over his kingdom. And man has been running that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. We call it Christendom today. And we're part of it. But are we a good part of it? Or, or and there's like the Roman Catholic Church is a terrible example. That, uh, the bishop that just got shot in California, I think it was. And the, the guy came on and talking about how they were, they were, he was so dedicated to the, to, uh, the Supreme Mother or whatever. I mean, it was bad. I'm like, that poor dude. That poor soul. He's a high up Roman Catholic person, but things don't look good for his future. You know, he, he's dead. He, who knows where he went? I, I have a good idea where he went. And it's sad to say. I don't like to say it from up here. But when you're focusing on the mother of Jesus, over Jesus, that's Satan's way. So, hopefully, we are way better off than a lot of Christendom. Because there's a lot of stuff that has crept into churches. You know, it wasn't that long ago, and I, I preached a sermon about how the churches in England are no longer churches. So these beautiful buildings, wonderful architecture, and they were churches throughout centuries before. And now you can go over there and go to, oh, let's go to this church. I read about it in a history book. And you go there and it's so beautiful. They, they preserve the architecture, 
but it's now a fitness center. You go, you go to another one, there it is, there it is. I've seen pictures, oh, it's so beautiful. Well, it's a really fancy restaurant now. It, it, all these different things. They didn't tear the building down and build a new building for this new thing because the structures are so beautiful and have so much history that they preserve the structures, but they're not, they're not churches anymore. And the one that's left, like I think it's Westminster Abbey, glorious place. And if you walk in during the church service, there's just a few people in the front pews, and that's it. It's almost empty for a service. America is following in the same footsteps as what has happened over there. They pushed God out before we did. And, and, and we haven't learned from their mistake, and we're just going right along with what they did and thinking we're going to be different. It's going to end up different for us. Now, it's going to be the same way. All right, where was I at? At his coming, he will gather the saved to himself, but the wicked he will judge in righteousness. The transcendent, transcendent glory of this age is the very grace which will have been either accepted or rejected by the individual. The teachings of grace are perfect and sufficient in themselves. They provide for the instruction of the child of God in every situation which may arise. There is no need that they be supplemented or augmented by the addition of precepts from either the law of Moses or the teachings of the kingdom. Understand? Grace does what? Grace unfolds. Okay. Is that what I was reading out of this book? Okay, yeah, I was probably reading out of that. That doesn't sound like my words, but it sounds like his words. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I would have to go back. Now, some of this I remember really good because I'm explaining it to you before I even get to it. But, so, so yeah, that, 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 yeah, the dispensation of grace. I, some people hate the word dispensation. They think it's some evil word, some bad thing, and don't, don't be a dispensationalist, you know. But if you, if you believe, I was telling uh, Joseph about this a while back, there was a guy who, who was able to talk, talk about dispensations, and he said people get all weirded out over it, and he said, well, do you believe that you should be uh, running around naked in a garden? Well, that's Adam and Eve's dispensation. Well, that dispensation is gone. Because most people think, oh, no, no, we shouldn't do that. Now, if you watch the Super Bowl commercial, and if, if Eve just would have eaten, uh, what was it? The, huh? Avocados from Mexico. If she just would have eaten one of those, everything would have been great, and everybody would still be running around naked. And that was the commercial. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you missed that one. Uh, all right, then, do you think that a young couple caught in fornication should be stoned to death? Well, the Bible says it, but that's the dispensation of law. So then he said, then the guy who I'm, I'm talking about said, well, now that we're all dispensationalists, let's move on. Because if you believe that you don't do this now, but it was good then, and that was good back then, but it's not now, then you are a dispensationalist. That's all that means. It's the way of God dealing with his people at that particular time. He's the same all the time, 
but yet we are different, and he has to deal with us differently. Okay, now for the teachings of the kingdom. We're probably not going to get to Deuteronomy 10. And it's going to be good. It's, it's, it's good. It was really good. I was kind of excited about doing that tonight. All right, listen carefully. The teachings of the kingdom. The teachings of the kingdom have not been applied to men in all the ages. Nay, more, they have not yet been applied to any man. Since they anticipate the binding of Satan, a purified earth, the restoration of Israel. See, that's why people think that the earth is going to be purified, but that's not until after. It's in the next one. It's in the kingdom. Okay, the restoration of Israel. It's in the process right now, but it won't happen until the kingdom age. And the personal reign of the king, capital K, king, Jesus. They, they cannot be applied until God's appointed time when these accompanying conditions on the earth have been brought to pass. The kingdom laws will be addressed to Israel and beyond them to all the nations which will enter the kingdom. So in the kingdom age, not just Israel will be the one nation, but other nations can actually enter into it. There's going to be a lot of nations that don't but there's going to be some that do. It will be the first and only universal reign of righteousness and peace in the history of the world. One nation was in view when the law of Moses was in force in the earth. The individual is in view during this age of grace, and the whole social order of mankind will be in view when the kingdom is set up in the earth. The reign of the king is never said to be ushered in by a gradual process of world improvement. It is introduced suddenly and with great violence. The return of the king to rule is like a smiting stone and will demolish the structure of the world empires, will grind them to powder, and will scatter them as the wind scatters the shaft of the summer threshing floor. Where's that out of? Hmm? The return of the king to rule is like a smiting stone and will demolish the structure of world empires, will grind them to powder, and will scatter them as the winds scatter the shaft of the summer threshing floor. What's that out of? What, what book of the Bible? Huh? Daniel. Remember the, the, the statue? And then at the end, it's like Daniel saw this vision of this great stone coming down out of heaven and smashing it to pieces, and so smashed was it that it turned into dust and the winds blew it away. That's in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Satan and the satanic deception will have been removed from the earth. Israel will be realized the glory of, of uh, will have realized the glory of her covenants. And the long-predicted blessing will, will have come upon all the Gentiles and upon creation itself. The church is not once mentioned in the relation to the teachings of the kingdom, nor are those teachings applied to her. For her part in the kingdom is not to be reigned over, but to reign with Christ, her head. She is being, she being the bride of the king, is his consort. 
She will sit, uh, no, wait a minute. She will still be under the heavenly teachings of grace, and her home will be in the bosom of the bridegroom in the ivory palace of the king. The king will reign with a rod of iron. Sin and iniquity will be rebuked instantly and judged in perfect righteousness. Clear conception of the glory of the kingdom is lost if it is confused with the age of grace which precedes it, or with the sinless new heavens and new earth of the eternal state which follows it. So there's one after that. So the millennium is the thousand-year reign, and then at the end of it, Satan's loosed again for one last time. There's this battle, and then the new heavens and the new earth, and then the kingdoms are presented to God. So there's all kinds of dispensations throughout. And we're, we're in that dispensation of grace. I think that there's going to be a seven-year period that's going to finish the one before us, the, the law, and then the millennial reign, and then the last one. Okay. I'm just looking down through here. I think I've read enough for you to understand it. So just remember that the, the nation of Israel, they got the covenants, they got the promise of the land, but we are just pilgrims. We're not from here. We're not, we're not wanting to hold on to the land like the nation of Israel would. We should be, uh, oh, we're just sojourning. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm, I'm heading to the celestial city. Right, Lois? We're heading to that celestial city, and this is just a place that I'm at for a while, but this is not my home. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. And I'm married, waiting, because he went to prepare a place for me, just like a good uh, husband would do. I'm going to go and prepare a place, and then when the time comes to consummate the marriage, I'm coming to get my bride, and we'll go and live together in heaven, in that mansion. So, we're not looking for land to possess here on this earth. We're looking for our Lord. We're looking up, waiting for Him to come back. Talking about the uh, significance of the King James Bible, this magazine talks about a movie that came out in 2010. Have you ever heard of the movie, The Book of Eli? Remember that? The book of Eli. Joseph, I want to watch it with you. We're going to look, we're going to, you're going to find it, and we're going to watch it. It's called the book of Eli. Now, that, that right there would cause red flags to go up. Because if you think that it's, the movie's about a book that they say might have been, should have been in the Bible. Because you hear, you know, the book of Enoch, you hear the book of this, the book of that. Well, it has nothing to do with that. This man, played by Denzel Washington, who's a very good actor, and he actually has said some pretty good stuff, you know, uh, controversial things were happening, and Denzel kind of came out and set some people straight. Uh, but anyway, he plays this character in this movie. Now, this movie is... And, and the reason that it's in this magazine is because they're talking about how the King James Bible didn't just 
just jump to a running start. It took a while for it to become popular. But then what it has done over those 400 years, it's, it's just amazing. It's, like, it's almost like God is endorsing this King James Bible for the English-speaking people of the world. It's like God is making it, like it is the perfect translation for the English-speaking world. And God made it happen. And that's why it has become so popular and has withstood all-out attacks to eliminate it. And nobody can do it. All right, so this movie is based in, I think it was uh, 2043, if I'm remembering right. I know, I, like I said, I've never heard, I, I remember hearing about the movie back when it came out. And that was in 2010. Right, you know, one year before the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. Well, the Bible has all the, um, everything's been destroyed across the earth in this movie. In this movie, atomic war, and now we're like really scared about that again. Like you were back in the 60s and now we're scared again because we got these nations that are really doing some bad things. And we're thinking nuclear weapons could start flying, you know, anytime. This movie is about that happening. And the whole world is pretty much in ruins. And the people who survive, they got to do whatever they can do to survive. And this character here, his name is Eli. And he has got some weapons and he's got some good skill on how to survive. And he's on a mission to go to... Alcatraz, that island of Alcatraz, because there's a group of people who are safe out there from all the other people that will cause them harm, because they're on that island. And they have been finding artifacts, things that would help them remember their heritage, but what they're missing is a Bible. They're looking for a Bible. This character, Eli here, he has a Bible and he saved it somehow, and it was the only one left in the world. And he's on a mission to get to that place so they can have that Bible to preserve it, and it's the only hope for mankind to ever come back and be a civilized uh, world again. Isn't that pretty cool? So he goes through these dangerous situations. He comes to a town in his journey and they try to stop him, and they, it, I gotta watch this movie after reading about it. It is pretty cool. So this girl, this uh, played by uh, Mala Kunis, a uh, very pretty lady that uh, plays a character, and she's being controlled by this evil man named Carnegie, and he wants control over everything, and he's after that Bible. He doesn't want it to get out to everybody else. He wants that Bible so bad. And they, they figure out that this man has that Bible, and they're after him, and they're trying to get him. Then the girl, she is trying to go with him because she sees safety in him, but she's mistreated by this man. And he's got all these guys that uh, he rules, and they go out and do his dirty work, but Eli is knocking them all off because they're trying to kill him, and he's wiping them out. And they finally catch him, and they take the, he, he finally throws the Bible out to them. 
It's in this, it's covered, it's got this flap in it, and it's a flap and it's got a key. And they don't have the key to it. So it's sealed up, and he ends up getting shot in the stomach. That guy, the guy who gets the Bible, he says, God is good. And then Eli says, all the time. And then Carnegie says, not all the time. It shoots him. And he wants him to suffer, so he shoots him in the gut. So he goes down. The girl is being taken by one of the other guys. She causes the wreck or something, and then she goes back, finds him, and helps him, and they get into this vehicle, and they start heading to Alcatraz. They get on this boat, and they're heading out there, and they're about ready to be taken out because they're approaching this place. And he says, I've got the word of God. And they're like, we've been waiting for you. And they let him go in. But, but Carnegie's got the Bible. So he's dying from this wound. And he gets there, and they get him in there. And then the scene goes back to where Carnegie is, and he, they finally get somebody to break the lock. But they're being so careful with this thing because it's the only one in the world. So they get a locksmith to come in. They, they get the key, or get the keyhole opened up, and they open it up, and it's Braille. It's all Braille. And at that moment, the camera, you know, the scene goes back to Alcatraz and, and Eli's laying there, you know, trying to stay alive. And you can see that he's blind. Now that he's accomplished everything, God used him. He was blind, but now he could see. He did all these things to do the purpose of getting the word of God to where it needed to go. And then he, he's blind again. And he has been on this journey for 30 years. And he said, you have a pen and a lot of paper? And then he just starts. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So he has memorized the Bible over 30 years, and he quotes it to them so they can write it all down so they can preserve the Word of God. I mean, I'm reading through Deuteronomy, and I'm going, that's pretty amazing. That any, and that there's people who can memorize there are, uh, uh, Michelle and I went to a Bible conference down in uh, Bedford, real close to Lynchburg. And there was uh, this teenage boy that, he was probably 13, 14 years old. He gets up, opens the Bible. No, he don't open the Bible. He, the Bible's laying there. And he, I think it was, I think it was Colossians. Might have been, I can't remember now. It was one of the smaller epistles, but he read every bit of it from memory. All of it. Four chapters, five chapters. I can't remember which one it was. And I was, we were standing there, and I, he started doing He walked up there, and he started, he was dressed up like they would back in the day, and he had chains on him. So he was playing the character of Paul. And he walks up, and these chains on him, and he gets up there, and he just starts speaking that letter that he wrote, Paul wrote. And as he's reading it, I, I, it wasn't the King James Version, and I remember going, well, it's not the King James. And, and Michelle said, well, you can't do that in any version. And I'm like, why did I bring you? <laughs> All right, we are, we are about done. I just feel bad that... Uh, I haven't actually read anything out of the Word of God. Okay, so here's Philippians chapter 3, 
the first three verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, the reason I'm reading this is when, when we're in Deuteronomy 10 next week, and I'm reading it, it's going to sound so familiar because he's already said the same thing over again. It even happened last week. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I know this sounds like I'm saying it all over. I'm, I'm going back and reading the same thing over again. I'm not. Moses is doing it. How do we learn? By repetition. And Paul is telling the Philippians, look, you know what? It's not grievous for me to say these same things over and over again because it's for your safety. That is why. He said, and then he says, and two, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. And if you have a different version, uh, different translation, which I don't think anybody here does, but if you do... That would, I don't know what it would say, maybe uh, mutilation. But it's, it's these, these people who he considers dogs, and back then if dogs just wandered the streets and they uh, just scavenged for food and they were considered just low, low. And for you to be compared to a dog is, it was a pretty bad insult. And he's comparing that these people who are, have this bad doctrine, and what they were doing was, they were saying, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. So that's why I explained all the stuff I explained earlier. Because it was happening right here when Paul was fighting against it. This, this age of grace had just started, and it was really tough to get away from that dispensation of the law. And he's saying that these guys are telling you that, and they're all proud of themselves because they're keeping the law to some degree, and they're telling everybody they got to be circumcised. So it was a, uh, he calls it a, uh, he says, beware of the concision or the mutilation. If you're getting circumcised just for the sake of being circumcised, it's nothing more than just getting mutilated. It's doing nothing for you. So he calls it that, beware of the concision. And then he says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Isn't that good? Now, in, in Deuteronomy 10, pretty sure it's verse 16, it talks about the circumcision circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart that sounds like new testament way back in deuteronomy and that's a true circumcision of the cutting away of this flesh so that we can have a true spiritual relationship with god so those three verses go along with that that was part of what i was going to do tonight but uh, you know, you can read that, and then, of course, read Deuteronomy 10 and even 11, and we'll be getting into that next week. All right, we're done, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again. Father, I pray that we are just a little bit 
better equipped to do the things you've called us to do. Father, I pray that we have a better understanding of your word and, and, and know how critical it is to rightly divide the, the word of truth. And Father, thank you that you have sent us the Holy Spirit that is able to help us to see those things. Thank you very much. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.